prepare your ears, humans. Happy, sad, confused begins now. Today on Happy, Sad, Confused, Aaron Sorkin returns to the courtroom for the trial of the Chicago 7. Hey guys, I'm Josh Horowitz. Welcome to another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. Big one this week. He's been on the list for a while. I am certainly a big time Aaron Sorkin fan. You either are or you aren't. You either respond to Aaron Sorkin's quick dialogue and pacing and intelligence or you feel it's insufferable, I guess. And I think that's a minority. I'm, I am of the camp that Aaron Sorkin is one of our greats, a great playwright, a great screenwriter, a great wordsmith. I am thoroughly entertained by all of his work. If his name is in the credits, I am there. I've probably seen everything he's put his name to <laughs> because everything he's put his name to has has turned out you know, the great actors of our time, the great directors of our time, dating back to his first um, play, which was, in fact, A Few Good Men, later turned into, not so long later, I should add, into the amazing film starring Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson. But anyway, the, the, the movie we're talking about today is his latest, and it is his second directing effort, and it's a, it's a really special one. It's called The Trial of the Chicago 7. Um, this one's been on my radar for many, many years. If you're a, a film nerd like myself, you've followed this one probably because it's gone through all these different permutations. It is, of course, the true life story of the seven, kind of eight defendants, you'll see when you see the movie, um, who were arrested during the 1968 uh, conventions for protesting. Um, it really is a timely film. That sounds like a cliche, but my gosh, when you watch this movie, you will not be able to, um, you will not believe how, how, how vivid and, and important and, and immediate it feels uh, to the times we're living in now. Um, but this, this film has been in development for probably 14 or 15 years, and uh, Steven Spielberg was going to direct it, Ben Stiller, Paul Greengrass, it's gone through all these different uh, permutations, and it landed back with Aaron Sorkin, who was always the screenwriter, and now he is a director, of course. A couple years back, he directed Molly's Game, count me as a big fan of that one as well. Um, and uh, if you've seen the reviews, I'm not alone in this, The Trial of the Chicago 7 is a special one, and the good news is it's about to drop on Netflix October 16th. It has an amazing cast. Uh, Eddie Redmayne, Sasha Baron Cohen, Jeremy Strong, Mark Rylands, Yaya Abdul-Mateen II, um, it just, Michael Keaton, it just goes on and on. And everybody, it's a true ensemble. Joseph Gordon-Levitt, everybody gets their shot in this one. So can't, uh, can't recommend this one high, highly enough. And, uh, and certainly Aaron Sorkin, in addition to being a great writer, is a great talker. And this is a great conversation. Um, you know, he... At times, you know, he at times you just have to like let him loose, give him a subject, give him a question, and he will he will pontificate. And and, and sometimes that's not good. But with someone like Aaron Sorkin, you want to hear him talk. You want to hear him uh, go on tangents and go into deep stories. And certainly there are some in this in this conversation, uh, talking about kind of where the West Wing came from, talking about certainly the history of this project, um, talking about the Social Network, talking about a potential sequel to the Social Network. Make sure to check that that out. That is very interesting. Um, so yes, we actually covered uh, quite a bit of ground in this conversation, and I, I'm, I'm so glad that 
Aaron shared his time with me for this uh, this podcast. He's, as I said, he's been on the list for quite some time, and and the wait was worth it. Um, other things to mention, there's a lot of cool stuff going on uh, that I've been a part of lately that I'm really excited to share with you guys. The latest edition of Stir Crazy on Comedy Central's YouTube and Facebook pages is up. It's with Haley Steinfeld. She is a delight. She shoved a, a bunch of ice cubes in her mouth and pretended to, or didn't pretend, tried to utter some iconic film phrases and nearly killed herself in the process. I thank her for that. Um, you should enjoy that because that was a blast to shoot and it came out great. I'm really proud of that one proud of that one. It's, it sounds bizarre to say, I'm proud of the, the time I, I got Haley Steinfeld to act like an idiot. But you know what? Sometimes that's what the job calls for, guys. Um, two other events that I'm a part of that I'm really thrilled to share with you guys very soon. I've been talking a little bit about this in recent weeks. Uh, Metaverse, which is the kind of the um, New York Comic Con substitute this year. Obviously, there are no in-person conventions of this type. But my friends at the New York Comic Con uh, came to me and wanted uh, me to host a couple of panels. I came to them with a couple ideas and we put them together and they're going to be really entertaining for you guys. Um, one of them is a Lost Anniversary fan Q&A. It's been 10 years since the end of Lost, one of my favorite TV shows of all time. This is with uh, Carlton Cuse and Damon Lindelof, the showrunners of the show. A whole bunch of crazy fan questions, and uh, it's it's uh, if you're a Lost fan, you're going to enjoy this one. It's on October 10th at 7:25 p.m. Eastern Time. You can watch all of these on uh, New York Comic Con's YouTube page. So go to New York Comic Con's YouTube page um, and look for uh, this event, the uh, Lost Anniversary uh, Fan Q&A, and you'll find it there. You can also find all of their events on findthemetaverse.com. The other big event I did, I'm doing, I'm about to share with you guys, and I know a lot of you guys listening are Outlander fans or Sam Hewen fans, uh, the Sam Hewen Graham McTavish Trivia Deathmatch, October 11th at 10.50 a.m. I don't want to say too much more about this. I don't want to ruin any anything about this. I will just say if you're a Sam Hewen fan, if you're a Graham McTavish fan, if you're an Outlander fan, if you're a fan of mine... This will be worth your time. October 11th, 10.50 a.m. Go to New York Comic Con's YouTube page. Um, I'll also be sending out the links, etc. And don't worry, it's going to live there forever. It's totally free. Both of these events are totally free. Um, so I hope you guys enjoy them. I think you will. Uh, that's enough preamble because I, I, I want to get right to it. This is, uh, this is a, as I said, a really important one, a special one, an Oscar-winning screenwriter, a, a guy who is now becoming one of uh, our, our most interesting directors between his first two films. Uh, I can't wait to see what he comes up with next. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed this conversation. And no huge spoilers. This is all true story stuff. I mean, I don't think you're going to have anything ruined for you here. Um, but I think it will be entertaining to hear from one of the smartest, most fascinating uh, filmmakers alive. This is me and Aaron Sorkin. Uh, Aaron Sorkin, sir, this is a, a distinct honor. Thank you so much for taking the time today. It's my pleasure, Josh. It's great to see you. Um, obviously, these are weird times. I will take what I can get, even if you're in a box on my screen. Uh, we're going to get into this amazing movie of yours. Honestly, um, Tell me if you need like a boost at any point in this conversation, and I can start gushing if you need well, a compliment. You just gave me a big boost. I really appreciate it. You know, um, uh, because of COVID, uh, we haven't been able to do any screenings of the film. We haven't been able to do uh, have previews. We haven't been able to do a friends and family uh, or anything like that. So doing uh, 
uh, these first couple of interviews in, in the press for Chicago 7, it's the first time we've talked to anybody who's seen the film who didn't help make the film. Truly, I mean, look, I, I've done a lot of these and I think you know the code of these kind of interviews. Sometimes you can tell if people mean it or not. Yeah. I, I've seen this movie twice. I, it moved me. It it, it it engaged me intellectually and emotionally and that's all you can hope for. So well, that's uh, really great to hear, especially with such a weak cast. <laughs> yes, yeah, uh, we were able to overcome that. Yeah, uh, this Mark Rylance guy, where did you pull him out of? This guy, I mean, I don't know. Uh, I can tell we pulled him out of Jupiter, is where you find uh, uh, Mark Rylance. He is a phenomenal actor. Uh, I first saw him on stage uh, in New York. He's a British actor, and I saw him on stage in New York starring in a play called Boeing Boeing, and it was a performance that kind of captivated uh, New York. And the next time I saw him was in Bridge of Spies, for which he uh, won an Oscar. Uh, and uh, that we were able to get him to play Consular was uh, uh, just a fantastic thing. And he was such a pleasure to be with uh, on the set and to, uh, and to watch him work. Uh, uh, honest to God, there would be times I'd be watching him on while he'd work. And then there would be this long silence. And suddenly I'd realize that there was a long silence. And it was because, and I go, oh, cut. Um, I, I just, you know, that's my so cue. I, so, I have to direct again, apparently. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I, I'm, I'm impressed on in so many fronts in this one. We can get into more of the casting, which is a feat in it of itself. But, you know, like a lot of your films, I feel like you're, you are unique in that you are able to balance something that can be quite earnest and yet also quite sophisticated. Um, and, and that is a tough, that is a tough line to toe. And it's something I've seen recur in your work. Can you talk to me a little bit about how you negotiate that line. Is that something you're aware of? It's something I'm very aware, hyper aware of, you might even say. Um, uh, and uh, what I do now uh, is something I, I, I didn't do earlier uh, uh, in, in my career, which I should have been doing. And, uh, and it's this, uh, I'll tell the cast, whether it's Mockingbird or, or, or Chicago 7, uh, I'll, I'll remind them, I'll make sure they understand that uh, just my, the style in which I write throughout the course of a piece, every once in a while, it's going to start to flirt with melodrama, uh, okay? It's going to sort of walk right up to it uh, and ask it to dance. And it's in those moments, I am counting on the actors to not lean into it. Uh, okay, to keep it from going into melodrama. Uh, if you look on the page and feel like something should be shouted, it shouldn't. Uh, uh, that's your cue for don't do that. Um, so uh, it, it's it's a collaboration. What I, I'm aware that I'm writing something that's not meant to be read, it's meant to be performed. Uh, and so it's going to be, uh, it, it's going to be the actors and it's going to be the director uh, who, uh, who stop it from becoming melodrama. And I think th there's a power you can harness uh, in, in writing something, as you said, that's, that's earnest. Um, uh, and if you can have an actor who knows how to deliver that moment casually uh, enough, that recipe will actually give you what Lily Tomlin called the goosebump experience. It, it strikes me, you, t you said, as you're saying that, I, I, I think about all your actors as to a man, they are 
I think, you know, I think about like an hour into the film, how like you're already hitting it on all cylinders. And then like off the bench, you bring out Michael Keaton, who like kind of totally underplays without ruining anything is just just kills it without seemingly moving uh, his fingers. Um, Couldn't agree more. Um, I was so happy uh, when Michael began his second act with Birdman. Uh, um, and uh, and he was sensational in that, and, uh, and got the Oscar nomination and everything. Because I, I think Michael is uh, really one of the most talented American actors we've seen uh, in the last 20, 30 years. Um, uh, and when I got word that you'd love to play Ramsey Clark, um, uh, if I haven't cast it yet, um, sure, Michael, once come to an audition, we're seeing some other people for Ramsey Clark. Of course, you can play Ramsey Clark. Uh, and yeah, he uh, uh, he completely underplays it. Um, uh, you, you you don't get the sense that he's feeling like, uh, Jay, I only have two scenes in this movie. I better really, uh, uh, he just comes in and does his job. And so it's breathtaking. Yeah. Casting wise, obviously this is just your second directing effort This and Molly's game. Um, you've obviously had a strong hand, relatively speaking, as a, as a writer in Hollywood yeah. over the years. Yeah. Have you had a, a say in casting in your films prior to Molly's Game? And, and can you give me an instance of, of when you, maybe your instincts weren't the directors, but it proved that they had the right instincts, something that, that maybe came to, uh, to prove that maybe your first instinct was wrong about an actor. I remember uh, the day that I called someone very concerned because Jack Nicholson was gonna play Colonel Jessup uh, uh, in a few good men. And I just wasn't sure that he was right. And I went on like this in the phone call uh, for a while. And then I heard the person I was talking to, it was William Goldman. Um, uh, he means the Dean of American Screenwriters. And uh, with the play, uh, he kind of took me under his wing uh, and said, I think I can turn you into a playwright slash screenwriter. I think I can turn you into a hyphenate. So he was the person I, I call with these things and I'm talking to him about how I think Nicholson might not be the right casting. So what is wrong with you? Jack Nicholson is gonna be in your movie with Tom Cruise. This is really good news. Um, uh, and uh, as it turned out, it was. Um, uh, turns out Nicholson was good in that movie. Yeah, not bad. Um, so wrong about that. Was... Uh, I've been, by the way, yeah spectacularly wrong on any number of occasions about any number of things. I, Steven Spielberg asked me to come in for two weeks and just do like a last minute dialogue polish on Schindler's List. Um, first of all, I have to tell you, I'm, I'm the only one in recorded history ever to hang up on Steven Spielberg. In my defense, here's what happened. <laughs> I was living in New York at the time, I was living alone. It was the middle of winter and I had a, a high fever. One of those things where if you kind of try to stand up and get out of bed, you get dizzy and, and, and fall back down. And uh, I had just done a few good men. My agent called and said, listen, sit by your phone for 15 minutes. Steven Spielberg is gonna call you. He wants you to come in on Schindler's List. I don't care who you are and where you are in your career. That is a big phone call uh, to get. A couple of things you have to know. One is that my best friend's name is Steven. And two is that I was the last person in New York City to get call waiting. 
I'm expecting an assistant to call and say, would you hold please for Mr. Spielberg? So the phone rings, I answer it, I hear, hey, Aaron, it's Steven. And I say, Steven, I'm expecting a really important call. I gotta call you back um, uh, and hung up. And then just sat there for an hour before I retraced my steps oh, no. and said, oh, I have made a terrible vocational mistake. <laughs> Called my agent, told him what happened. And Stephen and I got on the phone with each other. It is a, seriously, the miracle is that in that hour, Stephen just didn't go to whoever was next on the list, right? Yeah, not worth my trouble. What, what am I doing? Waited an hour uh, <laughs> for me. Um, all he was looking for was a nice Jewish kid to come in and uh, write some scenes for young things. <laughs> Um, Wait, were you saying there was a casting thing related to Schindler, though, that you disagreed with? No, it wasn't a casting thing. Okay. Um, Thank God there weren't uh, phones that could take video uh, back then, or there might be a record of me saying to Stephen, are you sure you want to do it in black and white? Well, we uh, can't be right all the time, Aaron. I mean, come on. Um, but I, I, well, I'm wrong. I mean, it's huge. Yeah, at least, yeah. If you're going to go down in flames, it's make a them big flames. Way, yeah. Uh, uh, that I take my bets. <laughs> but I do always love those those roads, uh, those alternate casting things. I mean, I think back to one of the first scripts I ever read. I, I was visiting my my brother who, who went on to become a writer in LA, and he had a script for the American president. And I re- remember reading that script, and this was a fabled script back then that, I, as I recall, was a Robert Redford, Emma Thompson film. That is correct. And I will say that The American President, in its final form, is one of my favorite films. Oh, that, that is so nice to hear. Um, listen, I don't think I've ever written anything that, uh, whether a movie, a play, an episode of television that I don't wish I could have back and write again. Um, the American president, a few good men, the, the very early films that I wrote, I was going to school on those screenplays. I, I, I was, I was learning how to write. Um, you know, I'm, uh, really envious of, uh, friends of mine who got MFAs in playwriting from Iowa or from Yale. Um, and, uh, I asked one of them one time, uh, well, I have a BFA in theater. Uh, I, I asked one of them one time, tell me what, tell me about the MFA program, because I'm sure there's, there were classes in there, there's stuff that you learned that I shouldn't really know that, uh, that would really help. And he said, you know what, it, the MFA program is just like your BFA program. The most valuable thing uh, about an MFA, uh, about the MFA program and playwriting at Yale is that it gives you an opportunity to write the worst plays you're ever going to write. Um, secrecy. And, no one can see them. <laughs> yes. And I never had that opportunity. Right. Uh, my first play was A Few Good Men. My first movie was A Few Good Men. Um, and so I've, uh, like I said, a, a lot of people have been watching while I've been learning how to write. When you look at the films throughout your career, the produced screenplays, when you look back at, at something like, you know, American President, A Few Good Men, Malice, whatever it is, do you see where you were in your life? Does your personal life, the, the, what's the, the, the demons or not, or just, or, or triumphs that you're going through bleed onto the screen? The biggest uh, demarcation uh, would be my daughter being born uh, a little more than 19 years ago now, becoming a father uh, uh, would be the biggest demarcation. And I, I can tell pre and post uh, being a father. Um, uh, and, you know, I've never written autobiographically, so I know what demons you're talking about. 
those have that, that's never really uh, made it on the screen or the stage, and it's not to say that it won't. Uh, but uh, mostly, what I see is, um, you know, one of the nice things about being a writer is you do get better as you get older, uh, like being an orchestra conductor. Uh, so I I do see myself getting better, which which I like. This this film back to uh, Chicago Seven, which you know, as, again, as someone that, that follows the industry and follows writers and, and filmmakers that I admire, I know this has been around for quite a while. Fourteen this, years. This began with a, a meeting, I guess, again with Steven Spielberg, uh, the That's guy that, right. that, that. And I that, want to give yeah. the impression that, that I'm buddies with uh, Steven Spielberg. Uh, I think I've now told you about every interaction that I've had with <laughs> Steven. Um, but uh, yes, Stephen asked me to sort of at the last minute, I, which now that I think about it, it hasn't occurred to me until this moment. It was on a Friday night that I was asked to come to his house the next morning on a Saturday morning. That's gotta mean I was not the first choice, right? I, that just occurred to me. Don't, no, don't overanalyze this. No, don't, don't go too down late. that path. Too late, Josh. <laughs> The important thing is, not only did you write it, you ended up directing it. So all worked out in the end. I went over to Steve's house. He said, I want to make a movie about those terrible riots in Chicago in 68 and the crazy conspiracy trial that followed. And I said, I'm in. That's a great idea. That'll make a great movie. And I left his house and I called my father. And I said, Dad, do you know anything about riots in 1968 or a crazy conspiracy trial that followed. I had no idea what Stephen was talking about. I was saying yes to Stephen and I heard the word trial in there uh, and I, I liked that too. So there was a lot of research to be done. The day after I turned in the first draft, the Writers Guild went on strike and that story, which meant nobody was allowed to talk or meet with each other to, to do anything if you were a writer. Um, uh, by the time the strike was settled, there were other commitments that uh, that people had. Uh, so next was Paul Greengrass. Uh, I flew to London, spent some time with Paul, then Ben Stiller. Uh, and what would happen really is it's the riots themselves were a budget buster. Uh, every time someone sat down to figure out uh, how do we do this, you know, you have to come up with a budget that's somehow proportional to what the studio imagines the appetite for the film. Uh, uh, is going to be, and this isn't an Avengers movie. Um, that, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't mean that condescendingly toward Avengers, but I mean it's not as popular as sure. uh, uh, an Avengers movie. Um, and then a couple of things happened at once. Uh, Donald Trump was elected president, and things started changing uh, quickly. Uh, he began waxing nostalgic at his rallies about the good old days when we used to carry that guy out of here on a stretcher and punch him in the face and beat the crap out of him. He's talking about the Chicago 7. He's talking about the protesters uh, in Chicago. He's talking about protests, talking about the civil rights movement. Uh, he's talking about the 60s. Uh, that happened. And I had directed Molly's Game and Stephen was sufficiently pleased with Molly's Game that he thought I should direct uh, Chicago 7. The problem of the budget and the riots, they just threw me into the pool and said, swim. They said, you know what? Here's the money you're getting. Uh, just figure it out. You, you, you can direct a movie now. Just figure out how you're going to do it. 
Um, and uh, with the help of Faden Papamichael, our cinematographer, um, and uh, Stuart Best and Mark Platt, our producers, our production designer, Shane Valentino, we figured out a way uh, how to do the riots. If we shot them in Grand Park, where they took place, we were able to use the real location. That means that we would be able to combine in-camera footage, original footage that we shoot there, with stock footage, which we never pretend isn't stock footage. We all, the, the news file footage, archival footage is always in black and white, um, but we can get a cool effect. And in looking at footage and, and photographs of the real riot, you know, what you see everywhere is smoke. What you see is tear gas everywhere. And I knew that I could, use, if, I, if we were creative enough with that tear gap, we could create the impression of thousands of people being someplace with, uh, with a very few people that somehow we were gonna quilt together uh, uh, these, these elements. And you know, sometimes when you're doing this, because of necessity, in this case, an economic necessity, it forces you to be creative and you end up doing something that you look at it and say, that's what I would have done with an unlimited budget. Right. Uh, and that's always the goal when you're on a tight budget, that every choice we make has to appear as if that's what we would have been done. And that's what we would have done if we had all the money in the world. Uh, and I think that's what we ended up doing with Chicago. I mean, you mentioned coming back to this in this in this Trump world. And, it, you know, it, I'm sure these are going to be all the conversations you're having yeah. and, and, and rightfully so. I mean, you can't watch this movie without feeling the resonance and re relevance of this material. I guess yeah. I, I, I guess I'm curious, like. How much did you want to, I mean, the facts are the facts and they, and they speak to these times. You don't need to underline them. How much did the script change in these last couple of years? And how much did you want to reflect the specifics of what we're dealing with now? Or, or was it already there? Script didn't change to mirror the world. The world changed to mirror the script. Yeah. I, I did not make a single solitary change in punctuation to underline anything that was happening uh, contemporaneously. Uh, uh, any changes that I were making were, were, were writing changes. It's just that there's a, there's a new scene here I need, there's a better way to, uh, to do this, but um, I thought the film was relevant when I was writing it. I thought the relevant, film was relevant last winter when we were shooting it. We didn't need it to get more relevant, but it did. Uh, watching CNN's coverage of the protests in Kenosha, in Minneapolis, in Madison, in Washington, I would look at, at CNN's coverage and think, you know, if you just degraded the color a little bit on that, it would look exactly uh, like, the, like the news footage from 1968. Yeah. It, one thing that struck me um, is this notion in the film that you return to about sort of forgetting what it's all about, forgetting, getting lost in kind of the machinations to forget what the real, what we're actually fighting about, what we're fighting for. And, it, right. and you know, again, without ruining your beautiful ending, it really comes back to the fore. Um, I'm curious if you apply that to, to screenwriting as well. Is that something where like, I could imagine getting lost in, in a genre, in the trappings of a story. Do you always return to a mission statement? Is that some, is there a guiding principle that, that guides all your writing? Uh no, um, uh, uh, there isn't. I mean, the, well, sure. Here's here's a guiding principle. 
Uh, I think that before a film or a play or an episode of television, I think that before a film can be anything else, it has to be good, okay? Before a film can be relevant, before it can be important, before it can be controversial, before it can be persuasive, um, uh, it has to be a good film, it has to be a good story, well told. Uh, and so I'm, uh, I'm thinking about the audience's experience uh, during that two hours. Uh, I'm thinking about Aristotle and, and, and tools of drama and uh, uh, parts of drama. Uh, and I'm, I'm sticking to that. Oftentimes, very oftentimes, uh, what you set out to write, most of the time, what you set out to write isn't what you end up writing. You, you start out saying, I'm, I'm heading due east, okay? Uh, but as you're writing, suddenly you're, you're kind of going south and now it's southeast and, and uh, uh, it doesn't matter as long as you traveled from one place to another place, that, uh, that, that's what a story is. As long as there's an intention and an obstacle, as long as there's a conflict. And so you'll get to the end of the first draft. You will have discovered, okay, this is a story about traveling southeast, not a story about traveling east. Um, so uh, let's get rid of everything that's about traveling east and, um, uh, and hang lanterns on, uh, on the southeast part. The first draft of the American president, Josh, was, and just so your listeners understand, uh, a typical Hollywood screenplay is about 115 to 125 pages. Now the page count on my screenplays uh, are longer because my screenplays are almost all dialogue and little action. Chicago 7 is an outlier because uh, uh, of the riots. Uh, but dialogue just simply because of the format takes up more room on the page and less time on the screen than action which takes up less room on the page and more time on the screen. So A Few Good Men was 142 pages. Um, the Social Network was 181 pages. Uh, and the studio said to Fincher, well, listen, the first thing you got to do is get this guy to uh, make some cuts in this screenplay. Uh, and Fincher said, I don't think you're right. He came to my house with a stopwatch and he said, you're going to read every scene, all the parts and every scene for me at the pace at which you heard it in your head when you were writing it which I did, and at the end of each scene, he'd write down what was at the stopwatch. He totaled it up. It was an hour and 59 minutes. He told the studio this film is gonna be an hour and 59 minutes, which it was. And during rehearsal, and this must have proved the actress crazy, but during rehearsal, you know, he'd be rehearsing the opening scene with Jesse and Rooney Mara. Um, uh, and he'd give some notes. Uh, he said, it's great, this, 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 this. Uh, and um, this scene uh, needs to be seven minutes and 12 seconds long. Right now, you guys are doing it at 728. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, and the, the actors had never heard anything like this in their life. Um, but Fincher's a pretty intimidating guy. You're not going to uh, say, no, David, I don't work like that. I'm sorry. Um, the screenplay for the American president was 385 pages long. And I hadn't written the ending yet. I delivered it to Castle Rock in a shopping bag, uh, okay? And it was because I was really starting to fall in love with the sound of my own voice uh, <laughs> at this point. And uh, having my voice come out of a, a president. And I was just having a lot of fun 
writing a character who was a president. We were like seeing his personal life, you know? Um, most stories are about an ordinary person in an extraordinary situation. Here's a story about an extraordinary person in an ordinary situation. Right. He's the president of the United States. There's no such thing as an extraordinary situation for him because every day is an extraordinary situation when you're the guy who can launch nuclear weapons, okay? However, if you're just trying to ask a woman out on a date or have send her flowers the next day, things can get kind of funny. <laughs> um, and so I was really into that. So it's 385 pages. Uh, I don't think we met the Annette Benning character until page 90 or something. So Rob said, uh, okay, good. Um, I think what's really working in this is the romantic comedy uh, between Shepard and, uh, and Sydney. Uh, so let's just do that. Let's take away everything uh, that isn't that. By the way, this is not an original story. What you and I know is Annie Hall. Uh, is not what Woody made, okay? Like a or, murder or mystery, murder. wasn't it? Yeah, it was, yeah. yeah. Um, the title of the film, I've forgotten it, but it's a word, it's a, it's a word in psychology that means someone who is not, allowed, uh, not able to experience joy if there's anyone in the world uh, who is suffering. Uh, I, 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 I want to say it's, it's anhedonia. That's my, it. my Woody recollections are correct, yeah. This film was not working at all. Um, uh, it was a mess and Woody left it with, is it Rosenbaum, Rosenblum, his editor uh, on any hall? I, I'm I, basing I like on the name. Okay. There's a great article, I think in the New Yorker about this from, from some years back. Left it with his editor. His editor plays with it for two weeks, comes back to Woody and says, listen, yeah, the movie doesn't work at all. Um, uh, but I'll tell you when it works. Every time you're on scene with uh, on screen with Diane, uh, uh, that's when the film works. And so I want to show you something. I've cut everything that isn't about the romance between you and this character Annie Hall. Uh, and like Michelangelo cutting away everything that isn't David uh, on the piece of Marvel, that's how we got Woody Allen's greatest film, one of the greatest romantic comedies of all time. Well, and similarly, in your case, I, I take it that Amer that um, West Wing came out of American presidents' excesses. <laughs> because I'm a coward. Um, I, my agent asked me if, uh, if I would have lunch with John Wells. Uh, this was in uh, 1998. Uh, and uh, I said, sure, because John Wells was producing some really great television shows, ER, uh, China Beach. Now, I... I didn't know anything about television and had no plan to, uh, to do a television series. Um, uh, but I was fine uh, meeting John for lunch. Lunch, I'll have lunch with anybody. And uh, the night before that, that lunch, I had a couple of friends over, one of whom was Akiva Goldsman, who had not yet won the Oscar for writing A Beautiful Mind. And he and I snuck downstairs to, I had a little office in the basement, uh, uh, to sneak a cigarette and uh, told him about this meeting I was having with John Wells. And he said, oh, you're going to do a TV series. That's great. And I said, no, I'm, I'm not going to do uh, a TV series. I'm just having lunch with John Wells. And he looked, pointed up at the wall. He looked at the poster for the American president. He said, you know what would make a good series? That. Uh, if it wasn't about the romance uh, between the president and the lobbyist, but if you just kind of focused on the senior staffers, like the Michael J. Fox character and the Anna DeVere Smith character and 
um, and David Paymer and, uh, uh, and those guys. I said, Keedy, I'm, I'm not writing a television series. You're right, that might make a good, but I'm not writing a television series. I show up to the lunch the next day, I walk in and I see I have clearly misjudged what this lunch is supposed to be because John Wells is sitting there with two executives from Warner Brothers, two agents from CAA. And I sat down and John said, so Aaron, tell us what you'd like to do. Um, and instead of, I'm telling you, it, instead of saying, "I'm guys, I'm so sorry, there's been a misunderstanding. Um, I don't have anything to, uh, uh, to pitch. I, I really just came here to, uh, uh, to say hello. I said, I want to do a series about senior staffers at the White House. Because uh, uh, I remember what Keith had said to me the night before. It was the only thing I could think of. John Wells reaches across the table and says, deal. Well, remember, you uh, you were probably remembering, wait, I have 250 extra pages I can mark. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm By halfway the way, there. Those 250 extra pages boiled down to the first two and a half pages of the entire series. That's what I got out of those. <laughs> That's, there's no justice in the world. That's not even fair. But I was grateful for it. It's the difference between being on page two and page nothing. Uh, it's all the difference in the world. Uh, but even at that, I felt like, um, oh God, I'm going to have to write a pilot script about senior staffers at the White House. I wasn't thinking there was going to be a TV series. I wasn't thinking that, that a camera was ever going to be turned on uh, because nobody's going to famously shows about Washington, shows about politics don't work. And I knew myself, it, it wasn't, and it wasn't because I, I wanted to be political uh, at all. It's because I wanted to, I knew to write as romantically and idealistically as I do, you have to ground it in a reality. Yeah. Uh, okay. So this place was going to need to feel real. So you were going to have to hear words like Democrat and Republican. Um, uh, you know, the stuff that we're used to hearing on the news scene uh, uh, in the newspaper, they weren't going to put this on TV. There, there wasn't a chance. Uh, television shows, because you're not in business with the audience, you're in business with the advertiser. Uh, and this is before, even in 1999, it was still pretty much three and a half networks uh, that we were talking about. Uh, HBO was, was just in its early ascendancy, okay? Um, the Sopranos had just uh, started uh, on HBO. So what, what network television is about is alienating as few people as possible. That's why in the infancy of, of sitcoms in, in, in the 50s and, and 60s, Nobody lived anywhere. Everybody lived in Springfield, right? That's the Simpsons joke. That's why it takes place in Springfield. Uh, the man, you never knew what his job was. He was a businessman, okay? Sometimes he was in advertising. No religion was ever named. No black people were anywhere. No, nobody but straight, white. They didn't have to say Christian because they didn't have to say Christian. Right. Um, uh, it was a, a, a normal family unit. And I'll tell you, even, even later than that, when we got hipper than that, when we got smarter than that, you can see remnants of it. You can see remnants of it in what we all consider one of the greatest TV shows of all time, Seinfeld, right? Here is Jerry Seinfeld playing Jerry Seinfeld, the stand-up comedian who does The Tonight Show and goes on tour, but that guy is living in a $1,400 a month apartment. OK, because if he lived the way Jerry Seinfeld really lived, we uh, we wouldn't be able to relate. These stories wouldn't right. be as funny. Um, you know, buying 
uh, sinus medicine uh, uh, wouldn't be as funny. Um, uh, too many people would uh, would feel alienated. Anyway, that was a long way of saying I didn't think there was any chance this uh, uh, show was going to get on the air. The way it got on the air was, you know, they focus grouped it uh, on the way they focus group everything. Uh, it did not break the dial uh, in the focus group. Everybody liked Martin, who was not supposed to be a series regular, uh, right. by the way. Uh, at first, I thought we can't see the president uh, ever because any scene that a character who's the president in is just going to take up all the oxygen in the room. No other characters would be relevant. That obviously that would that would change. Then I thought maybe maybe it'll, remember on Home Improvement, the neighbor who you only saw <laughs> like the eyes. Yes. Up? Yep. Maybe we'll always have just missed the president. We'll see him rounding the corner or something. We'll see the back of his name. Well, that's that's hokey. Um, then I thought, okay, he'll be like a recurring guest cap character. We'll see him one at a time. Sure enough, Martin's original contract, I think, was four out of 13. Uh, he was going to do four of the first 13 episodes. After he did the pilot episode, he said, this is really fun. Can I be in all of them? I said, sure. Anyway, they focus grouped it. It, it it didn't test through the roof. It was very much on the fence. And some very smart person at Warner Brothers put together a new focus group where they tested different, a, a whole different demographic than they tested focus groups. And it turned out that the show did test off the roof in the following four uh, categories. Um, it tested off the roof with college graduates, uh, households earning more than $75,000 a year, households with home subscriptions to the New York Times, and the fourth and most important, because this is 1998, 1999, people with home internet access, okay, which not everybody had. Why? Because this was the height of the dot-com bubble and dot-coms needed places to advertise. Um, and high-end companies, BMW needed a place to advertise. So not only did Warner Brothers get put the show on the air, but NBC, in our first season, we were uh, we, we weren't a top 10 show until our second season. Our first right. season, we were like around 20th. But they were able to charge top 10 prices for the show uh, because uh, it was getting this very attractive audience for them. And that's how we got on TV. Um, I know that there was, there was some scuttlebutt in the last year about social network. I'm curious. It sounded like Scott Rudin wants a continuation of that story. How much time have you spent thinking about what that next story would be? Do you want to see it? Does David Fincher want to see it? What do you think? I do want to see it. And Scott wants to see it. I, it's funny. I just spoke to David yesterday because uh, I'm, I'm going to plug his movie because it's so freaking oh, good. Mank, I can't wait. Oh my God. Written by his dad, right? Written by his dad, um, uh, who is a brilliant uh, uh, screenwriter. But David has directed this movie just magnificently. It, it's breathtaking even by David Fincher's standards. Uh, by the way, Gary Oldman gives an amazing performance. So does Lily Collins and so does Amanda Seyfried um, uh, as, as Marjorie Davies. Um, Mar sorry, Marion Davies. Uh, uh, it, but the movie is gorgeous. Anyway, it's just talking to David. But as far as the, the, uh, a follow-up to the social network, it would be so much a sequel. I guess it would be a sequel. People had been talking to me about it and I, it, it, because of um, 
what we've discovered is the the sort of you know the dark side of of, of Facebook. Um, and I met with a man named Roger McNamee, uh, who had a book come out about a year ago called Zucked, Z-U-C-K-E-D. Roger McNamee was a big early investor in Facebook. He's a Silicon Valley VC, big early investor in Facebook, very interesting guy, plays in a band, and he's a serious musician, um, uh, and became a kind of consigliere to Zuckerberg right after the social network ends, um, uh, in those years right after the social network ends. And it was McNamee sitting on his boat, going through his Facebook feed, that realized there's something strange going on here. Um, uh, there's something weird that he's noticing with, with sort of the politics of his Facebook feed. And he took his concerns to Mark and he took his concerns to, oh, God, terrible with names. Come on, lean in. Lean in. Uh, uh, the the uh, Facebook, uh, what is her name? <laughs> it's okay, we're both broad. What is it? Cheryl Sandberg, thank oh, you. Oh, of course, Cheryl Sandberg. Okay. Um, I thought you were literally or, asking me to lean in, Aaron. No, I'm saying she wrote the book, Lean In. No, <laughs> I, I wasn't telling you to lean in, man. <laughs> it's like, do you want to see my eyes? Like, go ahead, yeah. McNamee meets with Zuckerberg and uh, Cheryl Sandberg and points out there, there's something going on here. There's a problem here. And Sandberg and, 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 and uh, Zuckerberg either seem, they seem uninterested in doing anything about it. Anyway, this all ends up with uh, McNamee in a Senate basement secure conference room, briefing, briefing Senate intelligence subcommittee members on how um, Facebook is bringing down democracy. Uh, uh, we have a huge problem here. Something has to be done about it. Uh, so yeah, do I want to write that movie? Yeah. <laughs> Last question for you. Yeah, sir. but I can tell you right now, I, I'm, this is this is by way of applying public pressure on him. I will only write it if David directs it. Love it. I'm sold. Let's make I it happen. I will only write it if David directs it. I, I am telling you that Billy Wilder come, could come back from the grave and say I want to direct it. No, it's got to be David. What's the greatest unproduced screenplay in your in your files? What's the one that that you'd love to see, whether made today or ten years ago? What's the one that sticks in your craw? That's the best thing you've written. I only had one unproduced screenplay. It was the trial of the Chicago Seven. Are you kidding? Amazing. Yeah, okay. my drawer is empty. I, it's, I'm very lucky, and I, I, I'm probably gonna I'm gonna get hated because of that. Uh, <laughs> but I, I've been lucky. I've written something, and it, it, it's it's gotten made. And um, Chicago Seven is my ninth movie, uh, and uh, uh, I, I've written my tenth, and uh, it, it looks like we'll start shooting it after Thanksgiving. Is that something I've heard about already, or do we? I don't think it is, and I realize I'm being coy now, but we haven't made the announcement no yet. Worries. So I just can't. I shouldn't have mentioned. No worries. It's Iron Man Five. Finally, you join the Marvel fold, as we've all been predicting. I would love to. Okay. Seriously? I would love to. I just don't know how to. Um, uh, are you kidding? Would I like to write a uh, a superhero movie? First of all, I really like watching them. Um, second of all. I don't think we'd have budget concerns, um, you know, the kind of Chicago seven, they usually give you the money you need uh, to make those. But yes, I love, uh, listen, I like watching the kind of, I like writing the kinds of movies that made me want to write movies. Yep. Uh, I like writing the kinds of movies I liked uh, growing up. I, I, I like superhero movies. 
when, when they're done well. They're good superhero movies, they're bad superhero movies like anything else. But I don't know uh, how to do them. Well, you're, you're a genre unto yourself, sir. The Aaron Sorkin <laughs> genre is one of my favorites, and you've delivered another one here with The Trial of the Chicago 7. Thank you have my thanks. Uh, this We just hit the tip of the iceberg. I hope we'll have more conversations like this in the future, uh, Anytime sir. you'd like. I'm sorry we just hit the tip of the iceberg. I know it, it, you're taking your life in your hands when you ask me a question. I'm going to take you on a ride uh, when you do. Um, I'm amazed you got to a second question. But, Josh, thanks very much. It was great talking to you. So ends another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. Remember to review, rate, and subscribe to this show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm a big podcast person. I'm Daisy Ridley, and I definitely wasn't pressured to do this by Josh. <laughs>